0: At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG. Make the difference. Welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes. This week we are talking about fashion. Turn to the left. Uh, I am John Richardson. I'm joined by the Future Notes who are the giggling Mark Stevenson. Hello. And the not giggling Ed Gillespie. Hello. Did I correctly identify the giggle? Yes. How do you know my giggles? Well, it was more of the clue that it was because it was a music reference and you find... I think any knowledge I have of music amusing because you think my music taste is so poor.
1: I don't think so. your music
0: taste is poor. We share a lot of musical tastes. The Eagles. We both like the Eagles. You <laughs> know. Let me piss you off as early into a podcast as I think I ever have. Right. Do you know what I introduced my three year old daughter to this week? Was it the Venga Boys? Close. It was the crazy frog. why
1: would you do that to yourself
0: (laughs) i I liked it we've had a fascinating tweet on the at j and the f twitter feed this one says i feel very strongly that i should let you know this your swedish accent was really quite good a lovely (laughs) touch with the pronunciation of the j and that comes from Derek from Motherwell. Um, <laughs> that comes from Inez, who is from Sweden. So that is the only vote of confidence I need. An actual Swede says it was a good Swedish accent. Do you think those? she might just fancy you? It's just never a thought I have when any woman gets in touch with me i can't believe that's true because i have taken an interest in your twitter feed and some
1: of your followers so this is a bit of crossover and oh I, say, I
0: see and i would say there are a number of
1: women out there who hold a candle for you john and actually say so on their twitter profiles and they're holding the burning end
0: <laughs> i was gonna say not just a candle but an entire lit piece of wood <laughs> with a soaked rag on the end of it <laughs> I am uh, deferring the email. I'm retiring triumphant from accents and reading emails. Uh, did anything catch your eye this week, Mark or Ed, on the email? I was taken by Emma Thompson emailed in, and she said she really enjoyed the
1: episode on healthcare. She starts off by saying, I am routinely depressed by your podcast. and then inspired and uplifted so thank you very much Uh, but she wants to say that you know when it comes to preventive healthcare, one of the best things you can do is of course breastfeed and she wants us to talk about that on the show i've tried i
0: don't think i haven't tried i've offered the neighbors (laughs) i've offered my family nobody's taken me up on it so what would come out of your breasts john oh I, i imagine it would be very sour Some kind of, I I, would would imagine
1: it'd be like a sort of like a a Thigston's old peculiar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in honor of what we're discussing this week, we move on. We are discussing fashion. And I have to say, I felt more justified offering an opinion on healthcare because I actually have been in a hospital. I've never even really driven past the padlock gates of fashionability. So, (laughs) quite what I'll offer this week, I don't know. But I am drinking in honor of our debate, of course. An old-fashioned. I feel I'm really growing into the podcast, not necessarily in terms of what I lend to the debate or how seamlessly I drive it forward, but I'm really getting good at drinking alcohol while you say interesting things.
1: <laughs>
0: and matching your drinks,
1: obviously, and matching
0: your Absol- drinks oh, to, just to, to drink. the thing. Yeah.
2: yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, I think, Ed, what we should do from now on is try and work out topics that we can
0: choose <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that mean John has to drink the most outrageously thing possible.
0: Yeah. Join us next week when we will discuss wall banging. Um, <laughs> that's the only cocktail I could think of, isn't that depression? We began last week by discussing our experiences of healthcare. I have to say, listening back, there's a moment in last week's show where, Mark, you say, I broke both of the big bones in my leg. And without knowing what you're about to say, I call you a silly sod. And. <laughs> Listening back to that, knowing the anecdote behind it, can I only apologise, which was an incredibly flippant response on my part designed to create humour in a situation where actually we probably would have been nice just leave a pause there and not say anything rather than somehow blame you for the accident you were involved in. It's what I've come to expect from you, John, and it's why we love you. <laughs> This is fine, though, because I can ask you what have been your fashion disasters. It's very unlikely to be that you were hit by a sweater traveling at 60 miles an hour. <laughs> so, um, Ed, what's your fashion faux pas? Uh,
2: I don't know. Historically, I've oh, had a bit on, of, a kind of... come on.
1: <laughs> I, know you. I know you've got fucking hundreds of these.
2: <laughs> I have a kind of taste in like flamboyant flowery shirts, which most people find challenging to say the least although actually since i became a single parent my designer look is more one that's acquired through the deft application of three-year-old food covered fingers (laughs) yes (laughs) that tends
0: to introduce a slightly different patination to my clothing yeah i really like that go on mark you slag him off because i think i might be nice about it no because i mean ed also is
1: a fancy dress freak if they're opening a supermarket, they'll turn up dressed as a shark, you know, just because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's an excuse to, you know.
2: Yeah, but let's face it, Mark, when we did the live show, you were eager
0: to get dressed up too.
1: That's all right. That's all right for a part. If it's a serious a theatrical endeavour, I'm all for it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> My fashion, I mean, I hesitate to even use the word, but I dressed so as not to be noticed. I try not even to look nice because sometimes you just Is notice that because you're
1: so it? famous?
0: No, it's because I, I've done that since I was about 13, I think. As soon as the shame of puberty hit and I realized what a loathsome creature I was, I've tried to slink into the background of any street in which I find myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, you know, we, I've said this before that you are a fashion icon, John. Your cardigans are a signature look. You've done, yes. you've done the thing that every fashion house wants to, which is create a unique and identifiable look that is attributable to you and instantly your
0: brand. You are the cardigan. The little pot belly straining at the buttons of a next cardigan. That's my identifying mark. And I'll take it. It's better than nothing. So I was excited when you suggested fashion as a topic because it's not something I was massively aware of, but it suggests that you know more than I do. So I'll level with you. I got in trouble with Lucy last year twice. Once because uh, she got invited to a dinner and I didn't own a tuxedo, so I got one from Matalan. And she was not impressed. But that was the only tuxedo available in Halifax. And I'm never going to buy another tuxedo. So I just got the one that was nearest me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also, to a wedding, wore the suit that I did my GCSEs in. <laughs> um, <laughs> you did your GCSEs in a suit? I did, yeah. Dress for the job that you think you're going to get before you have a breakdown and end up being a stand-up comedian that was the motto of my school I can't remember what it was in Latin (laughs) so we begin with how fucked are we and I'm genuinely interested to hear because I think it's going to be a surprising one for me because I don't think you'd have picked it if it wasn't worse than I thought so usually I say I think everything's going to be all right but I've got a sort of sense of foreboding I said what do you want to discuss next week and it's as if you offered me like a paper bag and just said, just reach in and take what's in there. And you had a sort of sly <laughs> raised eyebrow. Just just pop that in your mouth, whatever's in that bag. And I will not to tell you what it is. So um, I shall sit back, I shall relax, and I shall ask you, how fucked are we in terms of fashion?
2: Well, there's a quote at the beginning. Fashion is very important. It's life-enhancing. And like everything that gives pleasure, it's worth doing well. And Vivian Westwood said that. And it's a nice aspiration, but it doesn't cover the kind of unadulterated shit show that is the fashion
1: world indeed i don't design clothes i design dreams that's what ralph lauren said but we are going to reveal that fashion is in fact not a dream but a shagwanking fucking despicable nightmare of an industry
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah cuz almost everything about fashion is unsustainable I mean the garment industry is like the third biggest in the world after cars uh, and technology the wow. best kind of yeah so it's huge it's absolutely gargantuan and there's this incredible report by the environmental audit committee who spent two years looking at this and it's pretty coruscating uh, and even if you just start with the basic ingredients like textile production the actual production and the cultivation and agriculture of the cotton generates more climate change emissions than all of aviation and shipping combined it's about one point two billion tons a year uses vast wow. amounts of fresh water and a kilo of cotton which is about the weight of your pair of jeans can take up to 20,000 liters of water to produce and a lot of this cotton is grown in central asia and you may know the story of the aral sea which is now known as the aralkum desert because basically intensive cotton agriculture has turned the sea into a desert and we've even seen 40,000 punjabi cotton farmers basically commit suicide over the last 25 years because cotton is an incredibly intensive crop to cultivate, requires vast amounts of agrochemical input uh, which is very expensive and so the farmers have to take out pretty punitive loans against their harvest and if their harvest fail they end up in debt uh, and as I say 40,000 have committed suicide in the last 25 years alone. 40,000? Yeah.
1: Mm.
0: How did I not know that? That's like a town. Well, it's because fashion, as we shall
1: find out in that in this episode, fashion doesn't want you to know about its dark underbelly, its filthy, disgusting side. Because fashion is, of course, massively aspirational. It's all about feeling good and looking good. But actually, as we said, the industry is, yeah, it's a bit like it's the Dorian Gray of the world, really. It comes out looking all smart and sophisticated, but upstairs there's a picture of it in the attic with its knob hanging out and it's 78 years old.
0: Wow. Should I be avoiding cotton? Well, Should I be using synthetic fibres? Hang on, that... we, we've, we've hardly got started. Oh, you can't be more. <laughs> come on. Yeah. So let me add on to that. So
1: textiles, okay, most of them, you know, the, the cotton doesn't come out all those different colours, you have to dye it. And textile dyeing is the second largest polluter of clean water globally after agriculture. So it's a massive pollutant. So Greenpeace have got this great program called the Detox Program where they've been looking at the fashion industry and trying to get them to work. And they've been looking at all these samples from brands and going into their shops and buying them and finding out what's actually in the cotton. They're finding all these horrible products, including stuff that's banned in Europe. So things like, i am um, probably pronounce this wrong, but alkethyl alkytheno- ethoxylates. <laughs> okay, so these are often used in clothing manufacture, but actually when they degrade, they become these things called endocrine disruptors. Okay, and those are things that can actually cause cancerous tumours, birth defects, all that kind of stuff, because they fiddle with your hormones. So you've got the fashion industry saying, oh, we don't use them, but actually they're manufacturing stuff where these chemicals are used and importing them. There's a massive double standard. Also, formaldehyde. Did you know formaldehyde is used in lots of clothes? So when they ship it, they put in formaldehyde so it doesn't crease so much during shipping. So you should always give your clothes when you get them in a massive wash, in a very cold wash, to try and get rid of the formaldehyde when you buy them because it's likely that you've got this incredibly dangerous chemical being sold to you under the name of fashion. Anything more, Ed? Yeah, Uh, then there's...
0: Just give me a minute, just give me a minute, just give me a minute, just give me a minute. Okay. So that's the
2: cotton, that's the dyeing, and then you've got the synthetics. So polyester is basically the most popular fabric used in fashion. But when you wash a polyester garment in your washing machine, uh, basically it sheds these microfibers of plastic, and about 30% of all marine microplastics are coming from our laundry. It's about 700,000 fibres per wash, nine trillion fibres per week generated in the UK alone. And these are now ending up in the deep sea, in Arctic sea ice, in Antarctic fish, and in our fish and shellfish. And then we are eating them with as yet unknown long-term health effects.
0: <sighs> so, I been mean, a brief... We, uh, haven't, we haven't finished. Uh, rails. <laughs> well, just give me a chance to win one. If I bought a polyester garment and never washed it, that would be okay. Well, that would be better. I mean, basically, one of the things that the
2: footprint of a piece of clothing also depends on how often you wash it. So that's why brands like Hyatt Jeans in Wales have a thing called the No Wash Club, where they encourage people to buy their jeans and only wash them after a year, because basically it helps the denim retain its colour and its form and its shape, but also obviously massive reduces the environmental
0: footprint of the jeans. Well, I've not heard of that. The one thing I knew... I thought you were just going to talk about the human cost in terms of, you know, the sweatshops and things. Is that sort of like the plastic bags that you said in the food episode, that the plastic bag is a massive outlier if the food you're putting in there is more polluting than the bag itself? Is the sweatshop thing relevant or
2: is it the tip of the iceberg? It's massively relevant. I mean, basically fashion retailers have done what they're calling chase the cheap needle around the planet. And we've exported all of our garmentry production to low-pay economies where there's weak trade unions, there's terrible environmental standards like Mark was referring to in terms of these formaldehydes and other nasty chemicals. And basically people are working in poverty or piss-poor safety or terrible conditions. And basically, fashion's 9-11, if you like, was the Rana Plaza disaster back in 2013, which people might remember. And we certainly should remember it because nearly 1,200 people died when this factory collapsed and caught fire. And 2,500 were injured. Now, most of those were also women. So this is a huge feminist issue in terms of the workers' rights and the conditions under which they're working. And ironically, most fast fashion CEOs are men. So there's a big discrepancy there. Plus, we've got child labor. We've got forced labor, particularly in the cotton producing countries like Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan that I was mentioning earlier in regard to the Aral Sea. And also prison labor, which is quite topical at the moment, because if you've seen the film 13th, which refers to the US Constitution's 13th Amendment, you'll know that more black Americans are working in effective incarceration slavery in the US prison system than were working on the plantations during the plantation era. And a lot of them are working on fashion products. So fast fashion is essentially this whole engine of overproduction which leads to overconsumption, and it's justified and perpetuated through basically globalised indifference. It's sort of grotesque, actually. And a 2016 report into corporate leadership on modern slavery found that of 71 leading retailers in the UK, three quarters believed there was a likelihood of modern slavery occurring at some stage in their supply chains, and up to 50% of trafficked workers in the world are not working in the sex industry, as we always associate with, with traffic workers, they're actually working in the vassin industry. And there's almost zero transparency around that.
1: Yeah, and we'll come on to the problem with supply chains later. I mean, what was interesting is that so many retailers didn't know that some of their garments were coming. From Rana Plaza, so they didn't even know that they were using, you know, poor labor under poor conditions and slave labor, and that's shocking. Like you don't even know your supply chain has got this stuff in it. Mm. Um, the Walk Three Foundation, which campaigns against slavery, and they produce this thing called the Global Slavery Index every year. They reckon that fashion supply chains funnel more money towards modern slavery than any other industry besides technology. Most of those slaves in Africa and Asia, and as Ed was saying, most of them are women. Seventy-one percent of slaves are female. And then we think, well, you know, what about made in the UK? So this is things like buy stuff that's made in the UK. You won't get these problems. Well, that's not true because of plenty of slavery in the UK. You've got factories in Leicester where people aren't being paid, even minimum wage, and being abused. And when auditors turn up to try and look at these factories, you know, they get beaten up or chased away. So, you know, it's happening absolutely everywhere. And the fashion industry itself hasn't done nearly enough to deal with it because it's been making fat profits on this aspirational product that actually has this
0: very dark underside. Do you want a drink? Yeah. Well, another one. I saw the first one off ages ago. (laughs) Jesus. I'm flitting between like a personal shame not to know any of this information. But how am I supposed to know it if the, as you say three quarters of the retailers themselves estimated that there might be slavery at some point in their supply chain how is that even possible i mean if i were playing devil's advocate i'd say we need clothes i'm not excusing any of that that goes on but is the reason it's been allowed to happen because you know is this why you advised me to run naked through the woods last weekend i'm listening back to your (laughs) advice and thinking you were gearing me up for me having to burn my wardrobe and go naked
2: but if the complexity is it's what they call tier one two and three Suppliers. And so tier one might be supplying you with a ready made item. Tier two might be the people who are making the cloth. And tier three might be the people who are actually growing the materials to make that cloth. And most suppliers, as Mark said in terms of Rana Plaza, they didn't have 100% transparency on their tier one, let alone the tier two and tier three, which was like the Wild West to be honest, you know, they just had no idea. And we see this in supply chains in all sorts of sectors. It's the same sort of complexity that led to the horse meat scandal, you know, a few years ago where, you know, you're basically putting meat into a dish and you put the wrong animal in because, you know, you've lost track of what species it was somewhere along the supply chain or someone's decided to mix a bit of horse in with what was supposed to be beef. And this is what happens in these modern, highly complicated and highly convoluted supply chains. We just lose track of what's going on. And so we have very little confidence that what is happening is ethical you know justified humane
0: and responsible and often it's not it is mad that thing that because you buy something in a supposedly regulated high street store you assume you understand its provenance when you say we let's get into who the we is because this is usually the part of the podcast where you say but not in Scandinavia (laughs) and we all contemplate moving to Finland and Sweden and Norway. Is the we here the so-called Western developed nations? Is it Europe? Are we particularly bad in the UK?
2: We're particularly bad in the UK. I mean, this is the epitome of the throwaway society. You know, we buy more clothes per person in the UK than any other country in Europe. Our fashion is worth about 32 billion a year, but we consume around about 27 kilos per person of clothing and that's over double what the Swedes consume and one in three young women in Britain consider a garment that's worn once or twice to be old so you know we've got this kind of single use type of mentality we own 10 billion pounds worth of clothes we don't wear And on average, the typical Brit buys 28 items of clothing a year, and almost half of which remain unworn. So when you look at that over a lifetime, hey, that's 640 million unworn items of clothing every year in the UK, but each of us spends 37,000 quid over a lifetime on almost 1,000 items of clothing that we will never wear.
1: Yeah. It's... (laughs)
2: <laughs> I mean, I mean, pause for a dramatic effect, but I mean yeah. it's like it's
1: insane. I mean, not me. I know I've got two pairs of jeans and four t shirts and I wear them on rotation until my wife <laughs> begs me to buy something else. But yes, generally that's how it is. Fashion industry produces fifty-three million tons of fiber each year, and seventy percent of that ends up in landfill. Okay?
0: Jesus Christ, This is I know it's <laughs> just unbelievable. <laughs> this is I thought it was gonna be quite bad. But ultimately, I thought, well, fashion we can have a laugh about. Yes. This is the worst one yet. Yeah,
1: I know. Less than one percent of the material that's used in producing clothing is recycled into new clothing at the end of its life. Okay, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who promote the idea of the circular economy, say that about five hundred billion dollars worth of value is lost it's just this waste, this lack of recycling, just you know, making something, not wearing it, throwing it in landfill. It's mm-hmm. an absolute it gets, disaster. What happens it? gets to better, it, John.
2: Then? It gets better, John. It's because. Or worse. Oh yeah, go worse, worse. Because the retailers often burn unsold stock just to preserve their brand and protect their brand value. Burberry, for example, you know, that great bastion of British fashion, burned 90 million pounds worth of clothing stock in the five years up to 2018 until someone finally blew the whistle on them. So, you know, they actually set fire to 90 million pounds worth of stuff just to protect their brand value.
0: But I don't understand why you would make that much if, by definition, selling it would mean that you... But this is the thing. Well, they can't flood their own market.
2: So that's what I mean. That's why they burn it rather than allow it to leak onto the secondhand market and devalue their brand. But this is the kind of the treadmill we're on. Like global apparel consumption is set to rise by 63% by 2030 to 100 million tons a year. That's about... 500 billion t-shirts, if you want to think about it as in items of clothing. And that's a 35% increase in the land take alone for that fiber production. So if you think about it in the context of previous episodes, where we've been talking about the pressures on nature and the pressures on agriculture to make more space for the wild, that's another 115 million hectares less space for nature and food if we want to increase our fiber production and it's also about a quarter of our carbon budget by 2050 on current growth trends and on a two degree pathway so that's 25 percent of our carbon budget being blown on our clothes (laughs) on a budget which is by
0: definition you know unnecessarily lenient
2: exactly that's before we eat and switch the lights on
0: yeah i mean fashion is the
1: ultimate expression of the marketization or the consumerist treadmill because it wants you to buy something you've already got next year because the new you know color is in fashion or whatever so this year's look so it, it makes its own product Deliberately obsolete and convinces you you can't have a good trip to a party unless you're wearing the latest thing. And it just means that they are the ultimate expression of pretty much everything that's wrong with the world, whilst trying to present to us a vision of kind of, you know, wonderfulness and stylishness and expressing yourself and individuality and all those good things. And they've been getting away with it for far too long. So the Environmental Audit Committee report that Ed mentioned. It's a great paragraph in their executive summary It says, fashion shouldn't cost the earth, but the fashion industry has been marking its own homework for far too long. The scientific warnings are stark on sustainability, overconsumption and climate change are driving mass extinction. We need a new economic model for fashion. Business as usual no longer works. So the whole industry is basically past its sell-by date.
2: Yeah, it's just all too good to be true. As Mark said, you know, people should be screaming this from the rooftops and they, so they've got away with it for far too long. Someone somewhere is always paying. You know, if the price is too good to be true, someone somewhere is paying for it. Gandhi said there is no beauty in the finest cloth if it makes hunger and unhappiness. And perhaps it's not surprising, you know, from such a relatively superficial industry. This is an industry where racism and sexual misconduct are rife. It involves the sexualization of young women, where borderline malnutrition is aspirational. It's full of vanity, ego and power tripping. You know, it's also an industry which is incapable of reflection. Because of the frenzied pace at which it works. The irony is, you know, in an industry which is chronically self conscious, it's fundamentally unself aware. And it's either fundamentally unself aware or they don't care.
0: Look, I feel I need to put my cards on the table. On lockdown, I bought a Marcelo Bielsa t-shirt. I don't know where it came from. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was made of. Mm -hmm. It had his face on it Uh, and I wanted something with his face on it. I wore it for an online gig and somebody offered to donate to charity and they bought it off me. So I wore it once and then I sent it to someone. I don't know what they're going to do with it hopefully wear it a hundred times without washing it. (laughs) Um, I mean, that was a staggering piece of work from the two of you. And it makes me wonder why... Why this wasn't episode one, but then this wasn't episode one because we were talking about food and climate change and education. I just feel shell-shocked. And I'll tease forward now. We get to why are we so fucked next, and at the end we do how do we unfuck ourselves. And I spoke to a friend of mine this week who said, uh, I was listening to your climate change one, and I got about halfway through, and had to pause it and do the rest later because it was too depressing. Again, not what we're going for, but... um, the end is should justify the means and should always be the optimistic end that we have the power and capability to change. So without giving me any of the content there will be a bit at the end when you say how we unfuck ourselves will there oh yes Yes. Oh yes. yes. and it's actually quite simple with this one yeah you can royally unfuck yourself oh lovely okay good well that's the little bit when you're watching like a ramsey's kitchen nightmares and then into the advert break they just show you someone sitting down having a lovely meal and Mm ramsey hugging the person he's just punched unconscious in the chiller (laughs) um so we know there's going to be some good news to come so we'll get on to why are we fucked then because it I don't envy you this task. I don't know how you're going to answer it because it's so much worse than I thought it was and in so many different ways. Where do you start with unpicking why we've allowed ourselves to get into this situation? But it just starts, doesn't it?
1: As I said, from this ridiculous premise. The whole idea of fashion is you have to have this season's look. You have to have the new thing. So a pair of perfectly reasonable trousers or a dress you bought last year is no longer the thing to wear this year because it's not this season's look. So it's literally within the very DNA of the expression of what we think of as fashion is to make it unsustainable. It's right in there. You cannot be stylish unless you have the latest thing, which means you have to throw away the old thing. I think that's yeah. the ultimate beginning.
2: It's not just clothing. It's image, it's identity, it's status, it's sexiness, it's power. I mean, you name it. There's so much kind of embodied emotional content in what we actually just wear to cover our modesty.
1: Yeah. And I think there's another thing that's at play here, which we find a lot. Is you know whenever Ed and I are arguing against you know rampant waste you know and supply chain dysfunction, people are say, well you know, you're being anti-consumer. The consumer you know wants to choose what he or she wants to choose. You're being anti-consumer. I remember we were approached. It, do you remember by that bloke from the fair industry? He was, getting, <laughs> he was getting Josh, I think his name was. Hello, Josh. Hope you're listening. You, <laughs>
0: you're useless. Uh so no <laughs> Josh <laughs> no, I always dropped it the C bomb. Well we can call it just a bomb and bleep it.
1: No, but Josh wrote to us and said, you know, you're futurist, you think about the future. We're really worried about this, you know, people being upset about, you know, fur And uh, other (laughs) products and whatever, and this terrible council culture and this terrible anti-consumer thing. And, you know, surely you can help us talk about, you know, what we do in the future about these horrible anti-consumerists, you know, and it's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Your industry is absolute bleeding disaster. And it needs, you know, if you're not going to mark your own copybook, as the uh, Environmental Audit Committee said, then somebody's going to have to mark it for you. You know, and the fact that, you know, activists have actually got as far as they can in sort of, you know, uh, giving you a hard time with very little money when you're one of the richest industries in the world and have all this image and power is a good thing. So, fuck you, no, we're not going to come on your podcast and talk about cancel culture. Why don't you cancel yourself, you n- big knob?
0: The email was slightly more eloquent than that, but that was the basic <laughs> <threshold>. <laughs> I don't think anyone would have criticised you if it had been precisely that short and terse. Yeah, It does speak, to break away for a second, from the topic of why the world is so much worse than we all thought it was in so many different ways. Is that the worst brand or market that's reached out to the two of you for help? You said to me the other week that in a certain way the biggest and the worst polluters are the ones you need to get on board Hmm. um, in order to facilitate change. So is there genuinely nothing you can do for fair, or is it as simple as saying... You're a piece of shit, and I hope you all stop doing what you're doing very soon.
2: Is it acceptable to wear fair? Are you Davy Crockett?
0: Yes or no? Yeah. <laughs> We've been approached by all sorts, haven't we, Ed? Uh,
1: I think the ones that approach me the most that I really don't want to work with are arms dealers. And uh, gambling companies. Mm. And oh and the occasional tobacco company. It's like, have you seen any of the work we do? <laughs> have you listened? Have you read anything we've done? It's like, oh yeah, but if it says here you're quite good, you know? <laughs> it's like, yes, we're good because we're trying to kill people like you. Yes. They're always very surprised when you say no. They go, What, what do you mean no? Go, well, no, why not? Well, because what you do is essentially evil and I don't want to help you. They go, Is it? And you go, Yes. And then sometimes you get into these conversations, with people go, Oh. I've not thought about it like that. And then I've actually convinced
0: quite a few people to leave their jobs just based on me rejecting them. So, uh, you know, there's always, there's always work to do. And is that what's happening here then? When you lay those facts bare, and I said it on sort of nature and on climate, there's no human on earth that wouldn't listen to the start of that podcast and immediately pledge to categorically reverse some of the decisions they've made on fashion and to reuse things and to mend things so how is it that either the people in the industry are so good at obfuscating or we as consumers are completely blind to it when did it start are we talking in the last five or ten years or
2: no this goes way way back i mean arguably Uh, Fast fashion began in the 18th century when Hargreaves of Oswald thistles spinning Jenny could spin 20 to 30 warp threads at once. And so that faster material production of the actual yarn made more ready to wear clothes more accessible. Uh, And you even had kind of in the early 1800s, you had well-heeled people writing to the newspapers complaining that their housemaids were asking for higher wages to fund their dress purchases. And obviously those hardworking housemaids were probably likely trying to fill the same void in their lives that we are today through fast fashion. I mean, and in some ways, the make-do and men spirit that people hark to now and say, actually, you know, of the 1940s, uh, which was there because of the war effort, you know, and the restrictions on material access, that was actually an anomaly. And I think perhaps they were the only generation who ever had a truly sustainable approach to fashion. Because the trouble is, as we're saying, fast fashion has made it affordable for everyone to experience the pleasure of style. Now, that's not a bad thing. Design and the latest trend, they can get access to that. And that plays to the point that Mark was making about the consumer right to fashion. But the question is, you know, is that justified by the horrendous cost? And again, we see that in all the other questions we ask. Is cheap food, does that justify the terrible impacts of industrialised intensive agriculture? Does cheap energy justify climate change and the kind of continual burning of fossil fuels? Does cheap budget travel justify the over-tourism and the overrun and the environmental impacts of travel? Yeah, and now we have fast luxury too which is often made in the same factories and people launching new collections fortnightly so you know you can argue is this a democratization of fashion or is it just a kind of willful destruction and the thing is it's now gone completely kind of on steroids because of the online world you know where you get this instantaneous Targeted online marketing, you've got one click purchasing of an outfit that you've seen on an influencer on Instagram. So we've managed to build a machine which makes the selling of the seams absolutely seamless. Mm-hmm. And it just creates this endorphin addiction loop for people. It's a very short-lived one. And like any type of sugar rush, there's a massive crash. And these online retailers, you know, where they're selling misguided sells a one pound plastic polymer bikini. One pound. And you can pay for it in four weekly 25p installments. You know, so this is a race to the very visible bottom. You know, when people say, does my bum (laughs) look big in this? It's like, no, but it's fucking impact
1: does. You know, it's it's bigger, better, faster, more, and more fucked, basically. I mean, it's, you know, we always say it's cheap, but it's not cheap because the headache is basically we're destroying our planet. So it's not a cheap bikini. It's a very, very expensive one. It's just you're not being asked to pick up the cost. Your children will. I think there's a great line.
2: Who is it said, Ed? It um, oh, it's Lucy Siegel said, yeah, we have to explain to future generations. We missed the climate change targets because we couldn't resist a one pound bikini advertised during Love Island. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so on that sort of, and it's a point we were keen to make in the travel one that, you know, cheap travel enabling a family with not a lot of money to go on a foreign holiday. They are not the problem with travel. And There is a sort of class thing that we saw it during lockdown that, you know, as shops reopened, the queues were There's sort of a sniggering. And Primark was one of the shops, and it's one of the labels that we talk about all the time where, you know, there was queues outside Primark. And there's part of me that still wants to defend, well, maybe someone who can only afford a T-shirt for £2. That's where they go for it. But is it that nobody really can only pay £2 for a T-shirt and the people that are shopping there are buying seven or eight things and cheap bikinis and things they don't need? Or is the fault purely with Primark for making a £2 T-shirt when they know that actually that may be profitable for them? I don't know if it is or not, you can tell me, but they know that there's a cost further down the line.
1: Well, it is profitable for them. They reckon it's about 12% profit on a T-shirt, which tells you just what's happening down the line, doesn't it? Mm. So, you know, if you are somebody on a low income and somebody offers you a T-shirt at £2, you're probably going to buy it. And what you end up with, Primark, is you end up with a very low quality product. And you end up with uh, a product that's probably responsible for all sorts of bad things, whether it's environmental or social, down the line. So this is the problem we come up with time and time again with society is we don't cost in the real costs. And when you cost that in, things get expensive. And what does that mean? It means, oh, you'd have to pay your workers more, doesn't it? It's a set of rules at the top that say we have to keep things cheap so that consumers will buy them. In order to keep them cheap, we have to make them completely unethical or whatever. Or we have to actually manufacture things properly, which means we'd have to pay our workers more in order for them to afford them. Oh dear, actually, then I can't take quite as much rent out of that system as I want to. So you've got a kind of a shareholder renter greed that's basically fucking the people who are buying
0: the clothes because they can't afford to buy anything else and fucking the people who are making them because the clothes are so cheap. To be naive, as a person that would walk into, as I said before, a regulated shop on our high street that is paying taxes in this country and is surely, you know, subject to the same regulations as food companies and everything else in terms of their provenance. How is it possible that we've got to a situation where legally you mentioned auditors? How can you not go into Primark as an auditor and say, tell me exactly where that T-shirt came from and what the costs were on that process? And that that is has become unclear. I don't understand how that has happened. Because they don't know. They don't know where it comes from. That's the thing. That's
1: the problem with supply chain. And they're not obliged to ask. Well, it depends where your supplier is. So if your supplier is in a different country, and maybe that country has different laws, and maybe it's you know, not so well regulated, and then their suppliers are somewhere else, it becomes very, very murky. And everybody claims that they can't tell you too much about their suppliers because that would be um, giving away trade secrets so you know well i can't tell you who my supplier is because if i tell you my suppliers then my competitors might find out i'm getting supplies from them and i don't want them to do it so they try to hide everything in this kind of oh, it's commercial sensitivity also it's very difficult to trace everything it can't be done and they make these very nice noises about you know human rights and traceability and then they do absolutely nothing about it
2: I think that's the really devious bit, as you say. The defence was saying it's our—it's revealing our innovative business model, and as you say, that it's some kind of subterfuge. I think the other thing is—is is like one of the reasons that all of this manufacturing got exported in the first place was to cut costs and obviously to maximise profits. And you've even seen that at the high end. It's not just the Primark end. You know, there's another great British brand that I probably won't name and shame. Um, Why not? Why but, not name them shame? Right. All right, Burberry. <laughs> we've, we've already <laughs> and, and, done it, yeah. Yeah, they've already done it. But, you know, a few years ago, they were lambasted because they were making T-shirts. See, it's a British brand, British made. You know, Burberry is all about Britishness. Uh, and they were had a factory here making T-shirts, which uh, cost £8 pounds to make the T-shirt here. And that T-shirt was retailing for about 50 quid. Now, they exported the manufacturing. They closed the factory here, sent it out to be made in a factory in China because a Chinese factory could make them at £4 pound a shirt. Now, the margin on that shirt is still 42 quid and you're bleeding another extra four quid by closing the British factory, undermining the Britishness of the brand and exporting it. And that's the problem. You know, that's the kind of the affordable globalization bullshit, which means that we make people redundant here. We export the manufacturing and we play fast and loose with the notion of what the brand is supposed to represent. And none of it's authentic.
1: Yeah. And then even when we export it, um, you'll find, as has happened in the coronavirus epidemic, a lot of the big brands have totally shafted their suppliers by saying, actually, we're not going to pay for stuff you've already delivered. So, you know, guess what? Philip Green doesn't pay for orders that he's already put in because obviously the pandemic. So, you know, they export it to these places and then they're completely disloyal to those people who've been manufacturing stuff for them. And in answer to your
2: question, John, I mean, it is a system failure. Because what do people want? People want affordable style. That's not a crime to want that. But if you look at it in engineering terms, there's this kind of acronym engineers use called batnik which is basically stands for best available technology not entailing excessive costs uh and then the joke amongst engineers is is actually what you get is catnap which is cheapest available technology not attracting prosecution and that is (laughs) and that is and that is pretty much the way that the fashion industry like kind of skates over the thin ice you know, it's they don't do their best. They just kind of basically try and cover their asses to avoid the scandals. And so the system is fundamentally failing to deliver on its purpose without fucking everything. You know, it's like an energy system that cooks the planet, a food system which kills us, a sick care system we talked about last week which keeps us unhealthy.
1: I think it's even worse though, Ed, because we do need energy and we do need food. We yeah, do yeah, not yeah. need this season's fucking blouse or jacket. Okay, we don't need that at all. Okay, you, you can argue about how we get our energy, but I tell you what, if you've got to cook a meal, you've got to cook a meal and you've got to get your energy from somewhere. But you do not need this massive waste. And I think, you know, if you can say, how do we get this fucked? And Ed and I have discussed this, is that basically the fashion world, the whole ethos of it, the whole culture of it is deeply unaware. And as Ed has often said to me, the problem is the fashion world is simply full of
2: i love the way you put that in my responsibility (laughs) well no i mean it's interesting i mean like anna wintour you know who's been like editor of vogue for years you know she's actually been getting lambasted recently because she had to admit and apologize publicly for nurturing a hurtful and intolerant culture which is an understatement of the century you know if you've seen the devil wears prada you just know how nasty this industry is to the people who work within it they have a massive history of exploiting interns maltreating the people who work at the high end let alone the poor buggers who are working in the sweatshops and on the factory floors or even as you say growing the cotton itself so you know from top to bottom there is something rotten in the state of fashion Denmark
0: yeah it
1: is an ugly ugly industry
0: what I find really interesting, and anyone who's listened to the previous ten episodes, well, as you say, we've covered—you know—energy, food, education, healthcare, climate change, nature, big topics. I always, as a nasty and vindictive man, <laughs> I'm always tempted to draw you into like, whose fault is it? You know, who can I hate now? Give me a name, and I can make a little doll of them. And I try and resist that urge because, a, I don't think it's particularly healthy in me. And B, you do a very good job of not maintaining calm because you're not, but you don't get drawn into that. Whereas this episode, I've never heard the two of you so driven. And it does give this impression that actually this more than any problem we've discussed before, this is sort of what they call willful blindness that a lot of the people Mm. you've named, they know exactly what they're doing and they know what the cost is and they're perpetuating it because as you say, it makes them these profits.
2: And they've been doing it for a long time you know as i say this is not like this has been a recent thing one of the reasons that i kind of lost my appetite for a lot of consultancy work was just you know having to bring these messages and ask these tough questions and come with these challenges time and time again and seeing this glacial pace of change you're going you've had 10 mm. years to think about it. rana plaza was over seven years ago and you know that should have been a seismic rupture in the fashion world which should have made people re-look at the way that they were running their whole operations and as the report said you know they're mocking their own homework
0: uh and they're cheating when you mentioned that i remembered i said at the beginning oh, i don't really know a lot about fashion it's certainly not a world i'm involved with but i did when you said that i remembered that scandal and i remember it probably influenced my behavior for a year or two where i didn't shop on the high street and then it slowly drips back in and so I'm in an industry where also I will sometimes get given a shirt for a tv thing that again I don't need and I allow myself to think well, I'm on telly I'm obliged to look better than I would and there's no doubt if I dressed myself I wouldn't look (laughs) as good but I am competing in an industry where everybody has a new suit for a new tv series because that's just a trap that they've fallen into of believing that and I fundamentally, as a comic, I hate it. I always say, like, Eric Morecambe would never have been as funny if he fixed his glasses. You know, it was the tape on the glasses that mm. reminded you that Eric Morecambe was a comic. And Les Dawson wouldn't have been as funny if he'd lost weight and had Botox. You know, and like, then, John, because you're
1: asking us to finger somebody that we can hate. Who's the worst for a new
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, I am thinking about that because I don't want to get drawn into the sexism because the pressures on women make it worse for them. So... I could easily name male hosts, and I'm one of them, don't get me wrong, I've been given a new cardigan. <laughs> That's fucking ridiculous when you say it. <laughs> I've been given a new cardigan for a TV series. <laughs> oh, what a dick. Do you know um, what? I
1: think some people who are in the fashion industry listening to this episode again, the reason they're so bitter is just because they're all really unstylish and nobody liked them at school. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but then, you know, for men, they'll get given a suit, and I could go on that, but they'll wear that suit for probably five series. And you see it with the royal family, that it's in the fucking papers if they wear something twice. Mm. Which blows my mind that it's a news story that, my God, she had that on seven years ago. I exactly. mean... It should be a cause for
2: celebration, shouldn't it?
0: Absolutely. Well, let me tell you, Ed, I own a pair of boxer shorts that not only did I not buy, I found them in a lingerie. <laughs> 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 when I lived in I lived in Bristol. And I used to do my washing at the laundrette and when I emptied the tumble dryer there was a pair of shorts in there that were not mine. And obviously I'm not going to pin them to the wall in the laundrette. So I took them home. They're really comfortable. I have them still. I wore them last night in bed. Um wow. and I lived in Bristol in 2005. Nice. So that's that's 15 years. That's heroic. Years.
1: That is heroic
0: also oh, that they sound like they sound like a
1: very well made pair of pants huh?
0: they're lovely they've got a little drawstring on them they come just above the knees they're just lovely for wearing in bed and i think as heroic as it is on my part my wife remains married to me knowing these facts about me so she deserves some credit so we're going to move into how we unfuck ourselves and i'll take you back briefly to a point you made because on a lot of the topics a recurring factor has been that covid has been an opportunity to have a look at a world we want. And this is one of the few times you've marked it out and said, actually, COVID's laid bare how bad it is because people obviously aren't buying clothes. They're not buying anything other than food at the moment. And instead of that signifying a shift in the market, you're actually saying, well, no, we're even more abusing the people that are making the clothes that come here.
2: Oh, people have been buying clothes, trust me. I mean, the online retailers, they have been doing a brisk business. But um, I think the disruption was the kind of the complete disloyalty to those workers, you know, hanging them mm. out to dry. Um, I think for me, the essence of this is like we confuse fashion with style, and there is no real beauty with all this hidden ugliness. And I think Johnny Versace said it. He said, "Don't be into trends. Don't make fashion own you." Perhaps a bit rich coming from him, because you decide what you are, what you want to express by the way you dress and the way to live. And the trouble is, the way we are choosing to dress and the way we are sourcing that
0: clothing says pretty terrible things about us right now. So help us then. We'll move into how do we unfuck ourselves. Let's get straight into that off the back of that quote. Let's not be into trends and let fashion own us. How do we disavow ourselves of the need to be owned by fashion? Well, I think there's two
1: main areas to this. The first is the systemic things that can be done and are being done more in other industries, but could easily be translated to fashion. And then there's the stuff that we can do as consumers, which we'll come on to a bit later. So the first thing that needs to happen is you need to start making those supply chains more transparent and people say oh you can't you can't you can't but actually lots of businesses are starting to do that so natura for instance which is a kind of a cosmetics brand they own a body shop and whatever they have said they're going to have full traceability and certification of their supply chain with particular reference to human rights infringement um within the next three years unilever massive company you know one of the biggest companies in the world they're putting a carbon labeling onto seventy thousand products and also saying that if we're going to have a new regenerative um, agriculture code for all of our suppliers. So these are very large, massive supply chain businesses saying, if you tell me it can't be done, you're wrong, and we're doing it. And there's some really good benefits if you add that traceability in. So we talked earlier about the levels of suicide amongst farmers. So One of the reasons that happen is because uh, you you have to buy the equipment to do this year's harvest or whatever, or this year's crop, and you might have to get a loan to do that. And if your crop fails, you've got no insurance as well. So basically, if your crop fails that year, you're basically destitute, and that's where a lot of the suicide comes from. And the good news about making the supply chain more transparent is, as a farmer in India, for instance, as a cotton farmer, if you can say to the local bank. Um, My customer ultimately is Marks & Spencers. I know that, I can see that. And they've committed to buy my cotton this year and next year and the year after. Then you don't have to go to the local loan shark for your loan. You can go to a reputable financial institution, get loans at decent rates and also get insurance against a failed crop because you can say, whereas if you say, oh, my only customer really is the local wholesaler, you've got a lot less clout with the bank. So opening up supply chains like that is actually one way of bringing a lot of financial security to the people at the bottom end. It's because they want to know that actually their cotton is being bought by Marks and Spencers or you know some big brand or whatever because it's good for them. So that's the other thing to do. And this is all coming underneath the um, Sustainable Development Goals. So Sustainable Development Goal 8 is all about promoting sustained, inclusive, economic growth full of production of employment and decent work. And basically it says, you know, in that there is this demand for all governments to start taking immediate and effective measures to secure and eliminate the worst forms of child labour and forced labour. So that's, you know, coming increasingly into legislation. Every government is going to be passing that kind of legislation more and more and forcing these things to happen. So we need to get behind that as well. And the other thing I would say is i just remember that I was once asked to do a consultancy job for a luxury shoe brand, (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> they wanted me to come in for an afternoon and talk to them about stuff I was going in and I was thinking what the fuck am I going to say to these people and there was actually a, I did a presentation and halfway through it there's a bit where I sort of, you know told them everything that was happening with climate change and I basically said so the world's on fire and you're making luxury shoes at 500 pounds of pop what's the point in you then and the whole room went completely quiet and everyone looks a bit sheepish and they said, they said well what is the point of us and I said I'll tell you what the point is from now on, you've got to make the sustainability aspirational. The most luxury product will not be the one that looks the nicest or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I can still have all that, but you should define luxury as something that makes the planet better, not something that makes just you look better. So if you can create a... Regener- no holds barred there. Yeah, mm. you can create a regenerative fashion industry where the very pinnacle of luxury and the latest thing is a regenerative product, not one that destroys our future.
0: I say you really stuck boot in. <laughs> um, thank you. Was it then? No. no really. <laughs> On the topic of shoes then, is the solution, as we've alluded to a couple of times, I'm a vegan and I buy vegan shoes, is the solution actually that we step away completely from cotton and polyester into i think some of my shoes are made from sort of a seaweed algae that's extracted is that a solution
2: yeah i mean there's all sorts of kind of material innovation i mean hemp is a great source of more sustainable fiber than cotton it's a much more efficient crop um there's banana and pineapple leathers you know there's worn again which is sort of recycled polyester which you know you can actually recycle in perpetuity if you can close the loop So there's lots of stuff around the materiality of the type of products, which I think does hold some solutions. But I mean, ultimately, the most sustainable garment is the one we already own and that somehow repairing, rewearing, reusing and renting are always going to be preferable to recycling or discarding clothes ending up in landfill, as Mark was saying earlier. And so the way we really unfuck ourselves has got to be culture change because we can't really efficiency our way out of this. We have to be buying much less, but buying much better quality. You know, and I was involved in an initiative years ago around clothes swapping parties. And this well, was you when, in the
1: Is that what you call it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Clothes swapping parties.
2: But the whole idea of this was the desire for new clothes is not the problem. It's the massive impact of the fashion industry that is the problem. So everyone turns up, brings their old clothes, sticks them on a rail. We all swap and everyone leaves with a new outfit. But there's because we've all swapped clothes... You know, there's no net environmental impact. But my concern came out of this. is That's not really tackling the consumption, actually. Can we really consume our way out of consumerism? And I think there's a big philosophical point here because that restless acquisitiveness still doesn't make us happy. You know, again, I still think it's feeding that endorphin loop in some way. And I think the slow fashion movement, like the slow food movement, like the slow travel movement that I was sort of personally quite involved in, is the key to actually a greater sense of happiness as well as a greater sense of sustainability. And my mate, Professor Jonathan Chapman, a brilliant book called Emotionally Durable Design which is like how do we have stronger relationships with the things we consume and fashion being one of them and he sort of writes quite poetically about the beautiful pair of leather shoes that you have or your favourite pair of jeans or things which become more beautiful and more valuable to you with age as they become more worn as they have markings or you know the pattern of changes or they fade in a specific way and I think that's part of it here you know that's the loving stuff and wanting it to last and actually there's a lot of UK designers who are doing some brilliant work on that you know you've got Christopher Rabin using a lot of recycled materials and upcycled materials you have Elvis and Cressy doing really amazing things with um, old fire hoses and turning them into very high-end bags etc but they are forced to compete with businesses who are focused entirely on on cost cutting and profit maximization, regardless of the social and environmental costs. So the challenge is, you know, yes, we do probably have to pay a bit more for stuff. The £2 t shirt is not the ground level entry into things. And if the price is too good to be true, it probably is. But the fact is, there is real beauty when you start to step in and step up, buy less and buy better quality.
0: So there's clearly work to do for the industry itself in terms of transparency, and there's work that we can do in terms of the need that we supposedly have to buy more. But if I was going to write to my MP or if I were going to lobby for a sort of a change at government level that I could look for in a store and say, are you doing this? What would be the things that you would say to look for there? Well, one of
2: the key things, and this is something the Environmental Audit Committee recommended, was this extended producer responsibility for textiles to try and stop so much of this stuff going into landfill. Um, you know, And actually, if you just charged 1p per garment for the producers, That could raise 35 million quid a year to get a better clothing collection and sorting in the UK. So, you know, that's the key thing. We need to start closing the loop. The leakage of all of this clothing, which is ending up in landfill, is sort of shocking and diabolical. And we need to stop that immediately.
1: Yeah, I mean, and we talked about in the politics episode, we talked about how you could reform taxation such that companies that have a better copybook when it comes to you know the environment and social justice actually have a lower corporation tax so you can easily see you know rewarding fashion companies that design products a lower environmental or social impact being rewarded with a lower corporation tax um, if they're using a different mix of materials so they're moving away from or moving towards organic cotton or recycled pet or something like that so that's another sort of policy thing that could happen
0: and so for me To start tomorrow, what is the thing that I, as an individual, that having heard this podcast, have been absolutely depressed, what is the thing you can say to me, right, start this tomorrow and you are part of the solution?
1: Well, I
0: would always say you can wear wool, but don't be a sheep. So I can wear wool?
1: You can wear wool, but don't throw it away. So there's a great campaign, uh, which is called the 30 Wears campaign, which basically says, you know, if you're going to buy something, you say, am I going to wear that 30 times or not? And if the answer is yes then you can probably buy it without feeling too guilty. And the answer is no, just don't buy it. The other thing I always say, and I say this every week, is get fit. You know, get yourself in good shape. The better shape you're in, the better any clothes you have will look on you anyway. We often buy clothes because we think we're not looking great. If you've got yourself in shape, uh, then those old jeans and T-shirt would uh, look fabulous on those ripped-tone uh, guns of yours, John.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm trying. I use Yeah, well, I actually reduced my sort of overall body take up this week by shaving my head. This was a lot easier than trying to sort of lose fat and get in shape. Yeah. just shave your head and you just look smaller. <laughs> I shaved my beard off. Has beard gone? gone, yeah. Oh, what a shame. Was that a shame. because
2: we were recording fashion this week? You thought, I can't tweet a photo of me
1: with a goatee. You know what? It was just shit. <laughs> <laughs> you Ed, your beard is a luxuriant kind of, it's like a sofa of a beard. You know, you kind of want to just Touch it and drink a black Russian with it, or something like that. But my beard <laughs> just looks like it looks like you want to go on a road protest and drink some meth. Basically, what I did was I asked my wife and asked two of my closest female friends who are very honest with me, say, "What do you think of the beard?"
0: And the silence that came after that question was yeah. so deafening that I thought I had to get rid of it. So Ed, um, do you have anything for me that I can start tomorrow? Mark says, um, get in shape and buy things yeah. that you're going to wear 30 times. I've stolen clothes that I've worn a thousand times, so I think I've ticked that.
2: I one. to say you're a proper disruptive innovator there, John. Um, <laughs> I mean, I started with a quote from Vivian Westwood, but um, you know, and she said, you know, buy less, choose well, make it last, echoing some of the points that Mark just made. You know, and that just makes sense ethically, financially, environmentally, humanely. The whole works. Um, I do think. We should all join Fashion Revolution, um, which is the movement to demand who made my clothes. Um, And Ursula de Castro, who's one of the amazing people behind that, said, you know, we should be demanding quality, not just in the products we buy, but in the life of the person who made them. And if you check out their manifesto on the Fashion Revolution website, it pretty much covers everything we should be doing and what the industry should be doing. Um, and, And finally, if you just take as your guideline to live within planetary boundaries and respect human dignity and equality, is that so much to ask? I mean, even if it is so unfashionable.
0: Gentlemen, that was absolutely staggering. I mean, intriguing, fascinating. I think we managed to have a laugh as well, which um, was uh, not what I was expecting after sort of five or ten minutes in. But we end with pointless futures. The fashion industry. Yeah, I think the whole thing. Should we just say that this week? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All of fashion is a pointless future. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, if that has fired off anything in your mind you want to send into to us, then you can reach us on the following channels. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the thefuturenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F and of course you can reach us individually on twitter too i am at ron Richardson, john richardson with the first letter swapped around that's what i've done there and you can reach ed and mark at the following i'm ed gillespie at frucool which is
1: at frucool and i'm mark stevenson and you can find me at optimist on tour
0: And we will be back next week for what will be our final episode in this run. There will, of course, be more, but we will have a short break. So next week we are ending with a special episode on the question I ask most of Mark and Ed, which is, given all you know, and we've uncovered a lot of information in the last 11 episodes, I am absolutely fascinated with how Mark and Ed cope with all the knowledge they have and maintain a positive and healthy outlook and manage to motivate themselves to be instruments of positive change on a daily basis. Because I don't do any of that for a living and I still wake up every day and think maybe i just won't do any of the things i'm doing so if you listen to the first episode on lockdown and you heard some of the specific sort of mental health advice and how helpful that was and you have anything else you want to ask of mark and ed this is your chance so get on the email get on twitter anything you want to find out from mark and ed about this fear about being positive and not reverting to cynicism and not giving up, then next week we'll discuss that to arm you for the long, cold, barren weeks ahead when there will not be a John Richardson and the Future Noughts podcast until later in the year. So get in touch. Gentlemen, thank you both. It's been an absolute
1: pleasure, as always. And I will go to bed tonight thinking about your long, worn pants.
0: (laughs) Ed, what are you going to think about? Uh,
2: The Morrissey Lyric I would go out tonight But I haven't got a stitch to wear Lovely
0: Thank you very much For being here Have a wonderful week Take care of yourselves Each other And this goddamn planet of ours Cheerio